good to see you here today, and uh, you survived the great windstorm of uh, December 2021, eh? So uh, that was unexpected last night, but uh, so much, so much better than uh, folks in in other parts of the country. Uh, if you had power and been able to see the news, the, the devastation from the tornadoes uh, down south has um, certainly certainly been terrifying. So, uh, uh, I did send, we did send the elders and I sent out an email this week just reminding us all about the importance of social distancing. That was brought on by the governor's uh, re- in stating the mask mandate that I think goes into effect tomorrow for all public buildings. Uh, so I know that uh, in so many ways we're tired of that, um, but uh, it's really something that we need to, to take seriously. We've been blessed here at Lawson Road and we've commented on this in our meetings. I think we've only had uh, one person actually who here on a Sunday who later had COVID. You know, so that means that... Um, there's very little risk of it spreading if you're not in the same room with people. Uh, but it, it can be difficult to know, uh, or impossible sometimes to know, that you're contagious. And so uh, that because the, the rates are so high at the moment, we, we do want to take that seriously as a congregation. All right, uh, we are continuing our sermon series today. Good things come in small packages as we look at the, the birth of Christ and coming at it topically, uh, examining some of the, the paradoxes that we find in the teaching of Jesus that are lived out in the uh, birth narrative, in the events around the birth of Christ. In, oh, and I have my pointer turned on today, so that's, uh, we should be in business. All right, in 2018, uh, an author by the name of James Clear wrote a book that became an instant bestseller. It's in the uh, self-help sort of section of the, the library. But it, its title is Atomic Habits. And the basic idea of the book is that making small changes in our daily routines... Uh, whether it be at home, at work, or, or whatever sphere of life, that these small changes uh, can make big changes in our life's trajectory. And if you're interested, the book is only $12 on Amazon, or you can do a search for the author on YouTube, James Clear, and you will find all sorts of videos that he has made, and I don't get any commission from any of it. But this idea isn't original to James Clear. He may have new ways of presenting it. He may have new worksheets, new, new presentations of it, new applications. But the idea that small changes can lead to big differences has been around for a long time. We find numerous examples of this in Scripture that illustrate the importance of the small stuff in life. And so that brings us to our 
theme for today. In trivial things lies greatness. So today, as we think about the birth narrative of Jesus, I want to focus on the Magi and their journey, uh, which was just read for us in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, think about it for all of the stories that we have and songs about the wise men or the magi or the three kings from the Orient, whatever it might be. What we read this morning is all that we know about them. That's it. There's no other gospel to go to to get you know, some more information, some more details. That was it. Um, and, and that's not a lot, is it? Where did they come from? That's a good question. The east is kind of open-ended, right? You go far enough east and you end up in the west. But it, it, it's, it's somewhere out there, probably where modern-day Iran and Iraq are. The description of them as magi or wise men probably means that they were astronomers uh, or really astrologers. So they were pagans. They were looking at the stars, trying to forecast the future, serving kings and telling them whether they would be successful based on the juxtaposition of Venus and Mars or something. Uh, whether Orion was in the right quadrant or not. They may have got looked into bowls of uh, soup to try and predict the future, amongst other things. That's kind of what wise men and court magicians or magi did. They weren't particularly Christian, as we would think about it. it it's interesting because in many ways, if a Jew was to be behaving like this, they would have been cast out. They may have been executed under the Old Testament law. And yet, these magi came to worship Jesus. Not only that, we usually think of them in grand scale. Right? Whether we think of them as kings or not, we think of them as important people of influence. They had wealth to be able to undertake a journey like they did. And the journey itself is an epic pilgrimage. They traveled hundreds of miles, and it may have taken them well over a year. Uh, we see in our reading that Herod, at one point, had a private conversation with them. He says, tell me, when did that star appear? Okay. And that, that we don't know the answer, but later when he kills all the children, all the boys in Bethlehem, he kills those that are two years and younger. So it's quite possible that they've been, they first saw that star two years ago. Whether that was at the time of Jesus' birth, two years before his birth, we don't know. But it may well have been a two-year pilgrimage from the moment they saw that star to when they arrived there in Jerusalem. So the amount of finances and planning that go into a trip like that would have been significant. Just so that we can dress up our children and put on a little play every year in December. They had no idea, did they? And so while we think of them as important people making a grand journey, 
I want to point out some details about them that make them successful. Because things could have gone wrong so many times. The first one is we see right at the beginning in Matthew chapter 2. And if you have your uh, Bibles there, you can sort of follow along with me as we work down through here. I'm not going to do a lot of reading. Uh, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. They asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. They saw his star. How many stars are there in the sky? Now, there are millions, right? Um, But, it may surprise you, it sort of surprises me, based on extensive Google searching and reading at least two articles on the topic, I have learned that there are approximately 10,000 stars that are visible from Earth with the naked eye. That's from the whole planet, northern hemisphere and southern hemisphere. Because there are some stars that can only be seen from one place or the other. Um, That's why the Southern Cross is on Australia and New Zealand's flag, because it can only be seen from the southern hemisphere. The Little Dipper can only be seen from the northern hemisphere. So the 10,000 includes both that can be seen with the naked eye. But, so, so if we just sort of, I don't know if it's quite right to halve it, Let, let's take about a quarter away that can only be seen from one hemisphere. So that gives us about 7,500 stars that can be seen with the naked eye. Now for us, with our cities, our suburbs, all of our ambient light that we have, How much do you think the number is if you walk out on your backyard tonight, clear skies, and look up, how many stars do you reckon would be visible to you? (laughs) Maybe 10? So, um, and then you learn they're planets or something. I think we're counting planets, comets, you know, distinct shiny things as stars. Technical term there. And uh, the, the answer is somewhere, somewhere, depending on where you are, how many trees. There's less trees there now, so you can see clearly, less leaves. Um, about 500. Okay. And the closer you get to the city, the less and less stars that you can see. However, the Magi didn't have any real ambient light. A few campfires, maybe. And so... As they look at the sky, they can see, what, 7,500 stars at any given moment. And of those 7,500 stars that they can see, they notice one behaving strangely. Think about that. 7,500 stars in the sky. And one of them is new, is doing something unusual, It catches their attention. There were hundreds of thousands of people living in that same region as them, looking at the same sky, 
There was no television. This is what they did. They looked at the sky and told stories about the stars. Hundreds of thousands of people doing this. And how many noticed that one star behaving strangely? And so I think that as we look at these details, noticing is where greatness begins. That, that if they hadn't noticed, and, and don't you wonder how often we go through life and, and we perhaps overlook people, overlook situations, overlook opportunities. And if we're not intentional, they saw the star because they were looking at the stars. But, but it's so easy to go through life just thinking about myself, thinking about my task, having a tunnel vision, and missing out on something important. Now, it's certainly possible that other people noticed the star with those hundreds of thousands of people in that region looking at the sky. They probably some people saw it beyond however many magi in that particular place. But not everybody thought it was important or significant. And so the magi not only saw it, they valued it. And again, this comes back and it poses the question to us, what value do we give to these things that fill in the space around us? What value do we give to those moments with family or friends? What, what value do we give to people that may come across our path? What, what value do we assign to things? Because that tunnel vision makes us the only person or thing, our priorities, the only things of value. And so the Magi valued what others overlooked. They determined. And we might say, how on earth did they make this determination? Right? I don't know. But they determined that this star meant that a king had been born somewhere. And, and that gave the star special Value. All right. The next thing is that they followed their values. Not everybody has the opportunity to do this, right? I mean, these guys, they had to cut grass, rake leaves, shovel snow, you know, save their pennies to go on this trip. I don't know what they did or how wealthy they were. But somehow or other, they got together the provisions and the finances they need to go on a trip. Why? To see a king. You see, the, the number of people keeps getting smaller here because there could have been many people that saw the star but didn't give it value. There could have been you know, a significant number of people that saw the star and said, oh, a king must be born. But then they just yawned and said, well, new princes, new kings are born all the time, right? That's, the old one goes, the new one comes. Most of them don't actually live to be actually be king. Yeah. Um, and so what's the big deal? But these magi, they said, not all kings get a star. <laughs> For a king to get a star, he's got to be something special. And if he's something special, we don't want to be left on the sidelines. We don't want to miss this opportunity. We're going to go 
to see this king who has his own star. And, and so, again, we can give value to things. Think how many aspirations we have in life. Oh, it would be good to catch up with this person. It would be good to call and talk to this family member that I haven't seen. It would be good to call somebody that's not here today and see how they are. It would be good to... I value those people and I value doing those things. But how many times do we not follow through with them? Someone else will do that. I'm sure someone knows where that person was. I'm sure someone will help that person out. I'm sure someone... And, and we, we see the issue, see the need, see the opportunity, we, we recognize its value, but we pass on by. The Magi didn't. They followed. They acted on their values. Now, this next one isn't really about the Magi, but when they arrive at the palace, and they say, hey, we're looking for a king. And the palace officials in Jerusalem, at Herod's palace, you know, they sort of look around and they go, well, the king's over there. No, no, we're looking for a new king that's been born. And they're like, oh, trust us. We would know if there was a king born. Herod has a very thorough register of anyone that might be in line to the throne. We would know about this. There is no one that has been born that is going to be king. And, uh, and, and they insist. And, and then eventually Herod hears about this in verse 3. Um, he calls all the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he asks them, hey, what about that Messiah? What about that Messiah? I talked last week how Israel was looking for a Messiah. Many people, not all of Israel, but many people in Israel were looking for a Messiah. He says, is this part of that? Tell me, where was that Messiah going to be born? Well, imagine if these people hadn't been studying their scriptures. And they looked at Herod and they said, oh, I don't know. Oh, good question. We've never thought about that. And I know you're there and you're thinking, Micah 5, Micah 5. But imagine if they hadn't done that hard work. And if you actually go and read Micah 5, you'll think, how on earth did they know that this talked about Jesus? It's certainly not clear. But they had come to that conclusion. Because they'd studied Scripture because they'd connected the dots, because they were looking for a Messiah, they were able to say, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, in Judea. For this is what the prophet has written. Look at verse 6. Here it quotes from Micah. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Nothing there about a Messiah. Nothing there about anyone named Jesus. Nothing there about the Son of God. But they said, that's it. Someday, there's going to be a ruler, God's ruler, who will shepherd Israel, going to be born in Bethlehem. That's an important detail, isn't it? But the detail comes out of Scripture, and the Magi listen to Scripture. They say, okay, that's worth a try. That's worth a try. We'll follow that lead. Thank you. And then they find Jesus. And and here's the part we're most familiar with, right? The Magi arrive 
at the staples. I'm not sure, I, I've seen different pictures, I'm not sure if it's with, before, or after the little drummer boy, but the Magi arrive at the, at, at the um, where Jesus is, okay? Probably, you know, if it's a couple of years after he's born, he's set up and in a house there, okay, being looked after. Um, and they find him, they worship him, they present him with gifts, and those are the headlines, right? Tell me about the Magi. Well, they travel a long way, they find him, they worship him, the star stops over them, and they give him gifts. Frank, gold, frankincense, myrrh. So that's the headlines of the story, but, but what happens next is also vitally important. Because they follow the instructions they receive in a dream. So you are a government official. Right? You, you work in a royal court somewhere. That's probably what these guys do. And you have the opportunity to visit the court of another king. And you think, well, if we can ingratiate ourselves with this other king over there in Jerusalem, maybe we can you know, come up with some sort of deal. We can strengthen relationships between our kingdoms. You know, we can, and if I do that, then my, my king will be happy with me. I'll get a raise. I'll find favor with him. Like, there were reasons for the Magi to think that doing pleasing Herod was a worthy goal. But they get a dream. We already know they listen to signs and that sort of thing, but they listen to the instructions. They don't just dismiss it as a dream. They don't just dismiss it as you know, bad pizza from the night before. They're, they're, they're saying, I'm going to do what I was told in a dream. You know, in our culture, I think one of the things the pandemic has revealed to us is we don't like doing what we're told. <laughs> right? And... and let alone something that we get in a dream. And, and, and so these guys, despite, were not too proud to do what they were told. And, and so I think that is significant because if they hadn't, if they had said, you know, going back to the king, that's going to be good for us politically. Our king is going to be pleased with that. Like we can get some trade negotiations happening here. You know, perhaps we can enrich our king more. Um, you know, we, we can do stuff. And all we have to do is go back and tell him where this baby is. But if they'd done that, they would have worshipped Jesus one day and signed his death warrant the next day. But they didn't. They followed instructions. And they left going home by different routes, doing what God told them. And then one more detail is important in this uh, series of events. Those gifts that they gave Jesus. Right? They lived, these magi lived generously. Um, we have a, do, do you have a tradition in your family, like when you travel somewhere, that you bring back souvenirs for the family members that are there? Um, I know... Rose, when she goes to Jamaica, often brings me and some others back a little jar of 
instant coffee, right? Jamaican instant coffee. Uh, so it, it's like, I'll bring you something. But there's, it, you, you, it's, a lot of care goes into that because you're like, well, how many people am I going to buy this for? What's my budget? You know, I don't want to spend $20 per person, but $2 is probably too little. Like maybe I can bulk buy something. You know, five tea towels for dish, dish towels for, you know, $15. And, um, anyway, so we, we, we like do what we have to do to when we arrive home or when we go to see someone and we're polite and we get by on the minimum. But these guys travel all that distance. They don't say, well, I've spent thousands of dollars to come here and see you. And I've worshipped you. You should be thankful for that. Like, this is significant. Our presence is our present, you know. Um, they give him gifts. They live generously. And, and I've come to, to think, after hearing others suggest it, that their generosity at this moment may well have saved Jesus' life. Because when, they, when, when Herod decides that he's going to kill all those children there in Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph, had to, they fled to Egypt. And when they get to Egypt, how are they going to live? How are they going to buy food? Who's going to hire Joseph as a carpenter? They don't know if he's any good or not. He doesn't know anyone. Maybe he doesn't speak the language. It's going to take a while for them to establish themselves in this new community. And they have in their backpack some gold, some frankincense, and some myrrh that were certainly appropriate gifts of worship, but practically may have supported the family during their time there as refugees in Egypt. I think it's an important detail. And so in those... Um, small moments, there's trivial moments, there's greatness. Each of these details are trivial in their own right. But together, they create the greatness that is the Magi and their journey. Now, before we're done here today, I want to just look at two other ways that trivial things lead to greatness. In Luke chapter 7, we have this event in Jesus' life, where he has been invited to have uh, a meal with a Pharisee. Um, this is in verse 36 and following of Luke 7. And, and he goes to the Pharisee's house. He's probably a leading citizen in, in the town, certainly amongst the pious Jews, religious Jews. He was a, a leading citizen. And, and so, as he invites Jesus to come and eat with him, he probably considers himself doing Jesus a favor. Right? Jesus has no house of his own, nowhere to lay his head. As the Pharisee says, well, I'll, I'll give him a meal and we'll have some entertaining conversation and I'll learn more about what's going on. But during the meal, in verse 37, we're told that a woman in the town who... Uh, lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. And so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, 
We're not told why she was sinful or what she, what she did. And there's lots that can be said about the ointment and the alabaster jar and all that. And I'm, that's not really my purpose this morning. But the Pharisee sees what is happening and he critiques Jesus. This is a woman of bad reputation. And he says, if Jesus was really this great prophet that he says he is, he would know who the woman is. And, and he would know what she does during the week, the way she conducts herself. And he wouldn't let her touch his feet. So he is at the same time both judging and condemning Jesus and the woman. Now he does this silently in his head. But Jesus defends himself. And uh, I'm not going to read all of that. But ultimately, he comes to a conclusion in verse 47. And Jesus says to him, he says, Mr. Pharisee, let me tell you something. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Now, Mr. Pharisee, you are of the opinion that you are a leading citizen, that you are a faithful Jew, that you keep and observe the law well, you clearly don't need to be forgiven very much. And as a consequence of that, you love little. On the other hand, this woman recognizes her need of forgiveness. And, and I, I think, I, it's my impression based on the, on the conversation, that the woman's tears are tears of repentance, tears of remorse, tears of hope, tears of a future perhaps, tears of joy at breaking away, the opportunity to break away from her reputation that she had. And so Jesus says, Mr. Pharisee, let me tell you, that for the person like this woman who has been forgiven much, that person will love much. And you see, that's, that's not really a paradox because it's, you know, it, it, it kind of makes sense. But in our way of thinking, I think we, we tend to think that the leaders of a church must be the people that love Jesus the most. That's why they're in that position. And, and so Jesus is saying, well, no, that's not necessarily the case. Because they may not be the people who've been forgiven the most. Or who recognize, more to the point, who recognize that they've been forgiven the most. And, and so there, I think, is the, the paradox in this statement. And, and, and so where I'm fitting this in, is this, this statement says that this woman with all her sin who is at the bottom of the local food chain in social standings, Jesus says she's not trivial. She's not trivial. Because in trivial things, there's greatness. And when God looks at this person who the Pharisee thinks is trivial, God sees only greatness because she is made in his image. And, and so our, our takeaway here is that there are no trivial people. 
that, that when we say in trivial things lies greatness, that we're not talking about people because there are no trivial people. Not the baby in the manger, not the sinful woman in the Pharisee's house, not someone here on a Sunday, or not somebody struggling with an addiction walking the streets. Because each of us is made in the image of God, and each of us has fallen short of the glory of God. So I want to throw her story in there in the middle, but I want to just go back and, and ask this. Is it too early to talk about New Year's resolutions? I know, we've got to get through Christmas. But I want to encourage you to start thinking now of ways to include time with God in your daily routine. You see, as we get to the end of the year, I... I I encourage us to think intentionally about our relationship with God. Where are we now? I don't know how you grade it, okay? But where are you today in your relationship with God compared to where you were this time last year? Has this been a year of growth? Has it been a year of distancing? Has it been a year of falling out of habits, creating new habits? And, and, And so as we take sort of an inventory of ourselves at the end of this year. What can we do in the coming year? What atomic habit? I'm not asking you to read through the Bible in a month, starting January 1. But what can we do in the coming year to be closer to God at this time next year? And so start thinking about that. The author I mentioned at the beginning with his atomic habits, he comes up and says, I, I think his statistic is, if you, do thing, if you do life, or find things in your life to do 1% better every day, because of the way percentages and compounding and everything works, by the end of the year, you're like 400% better than you were at the, at the beginning. So, what are the, the small things you can introduce. So um, we'll, we'll get down a little bit further, but let me just say the Magi may have been pagans. They probably never had the opportunity to hear about Jesus on the cross, about forgiveness of his sins. Um, this is 30 years before the resurrection, 30 plus years. There's a good chance they were dead by the time Jesus was was uh, buried and resurrected. But what we, one of the things we learned from them is that they saw the work of God in the world. As they traveled through life, they were oriented to be looking for God at work in the world. And, and so perhaps your 1% for next year is just saying, at the end of every day, I'm going to take a moment and say, God, where did I see you at work today? Maybe it's just a little question like that. Looking for God at work around us. I think the scholars at the palace may have been loyal to Herod. They were not saying that they're great Christians or devoted followers of God, but they made time 
to study Scripture. That was a detail that was important to the Magi. Oops, what's that? Keep doing that. And so maybe that's our 1% for next year, looking for God in Scripture. In, in 1% more than you've been doing this year. And the woman, as I mentioned in uh, Luke 7, the woman valued the time that she spent with Jesus because she valued Jesus. And so I, I want to encourage you to, to take stock of your time. What are the things that we make time for for God? How often do we look for the big things? Oh yeah, Peter asked me to fill in for a sermon one week. That's great, I'm going to be there on Sunday, I'm going to be there anyway. Like, that's it. But, but that's like going from zero to 200%. 1% might be, oh, I'll come in Saturday night and clean all the cobwebs that I've seen around the place. Because that would be helpful. Nobody knows that you've come. Nobody knows that you've done it. But maybe it's just a, a little thing that says, hey, I can just do time. But it's not just about the church, right? What if there's 1% better way of loving my neighbors? 1% better way of interacting with people in the church. 1% better way of being a better follower of Jesus. 1% better way of letting people know that they care, that, that God cares about them. I suspect that many of us come to these times of worship looking for a spiritual trickle-down effect. If the right songs are selected, if the right scripture is read, if Peter is on task today and preaching something I can understand that is relevant. If all of these things go well, and it happens about twice a year, I'm going to be so close to God that week. Okay? That, that if we get this really good, that it will trickle down into the rest of my week. And, and as somebody that right now is putting more time and effort and energy into organizing worship than I've ever done while I'm here, that that's kind of our goal, right? We want this to be a time of encouragement and time of uplifting and, and bringing you closer to God. But for all the work and energy that goes into this hour and whatever on Sunday morning, I believe that you can do more than I can. Because I'm not sure how effective that trickle-down effect really is. I want to suggest a better way of viewing worship and viewing life is rather a bubbling up effect. That I, I want you to, to think for a moment what it would be like if everyone here was sort of doing all of these things for the next month. Right? Every day, you know, I mean it's a lot to be constantly looking for God at work in the world, to be spending all that time in prayer and scripture. And, but if we all increased it, we were all deeply invested for the next month, then if we're doing that in our lives, personal lives, how would that impact what happens here on a Sunday morning? I wonder, perhaps, if this bubbling up effect wouldn't take place.
I wonder if the songs wouldn't speak to our hearts more because our heart is already speaking to God as we move through our world, looking for Him to work. I wonder if the Scripture readings wouldn't be more vibrant because we're already spending time in Scripture and and whatever is read here reminds us of something we've read recently, something we've heard recently, and, and, and we connect those dots and we come to a new realization. Or we go home and we say, that reminds me of something, I'm going to go find it, I'm going to go look it up. And, and so, because we're already doing that personally. And, and I wonder, would the preaching become even more relevant if you were already in regular conversation with Jesus? If you were already working on things in your life, then maybe what is said, whether it be around the Lord's table or in the sermon, or in conversation, if that wouldn't just supplement what is already taking place in your conversations with Jesus. Would worship then be a more vibrant and a more uplifting time because of this bubbling up effect of what is already happening in our lives that comes to fulfillment here in this time of worship? And so we look for the big things. We look for the worship experience. We look for the workshop. We look for the retreat. We look for the the time of special effort and energy to say that's what's going to get me closer to God. But perhaps we need to grasp the paradox that in trivial things lies greatness. Not that these things are trivial, right? But they're smaller than perhaps the way that we usually look. So Jesus, an infant, unable to care for himself, lies in a manger as the Magi make their pilgrimage. And there they worship someone. Just think, he never met them, never saw them. He was totally oblivious. Jesus, well, the stories may have had more details, but Jesus didn't know a lot more about those magi than we do because he was so young. But at that moment, a sacred moment, as they worshipped him, In trivial things lies greatness. What's the trivial thing in your life, your 1% that you can change to bring you closer to God and bring those around you closer to God also?